We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Reese, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Finally got you on. Excited? Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it, mate. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's been in the diary for quite a while, hasn't it? So it's been uh, it's good to get it done now. Really interesting topic. Obviously, individual development. We we talk about it a lot. Player development is a is a real buzzword, I suppose, in the coaching community. Typically, traditionally associated with youth football. But we've seen a real growth, especially in the in the Premier League clubs and in the UK in recent years with moving that into a specialised role. Why do you think we've we've seen that movement? I think well, you improve the individual, you improve your team, um, basically. And there's a lot of talk now, modern coaching about working with players as, as people, you know, as well as players. Um, so there's been a big shift towards that. And, and I mean, I've done... I've done the role previously in a first team environment um, where where we used to recruit players from abroad, from from lower divisions. And if they don't walk straight into your first team, you need to give them some care and attention and, and develop them to get them to that level because they're investments for the football club. Um, you know, it's, there's almost a business case to have people in place taking personal care of, of your players and that really intricate detail because... Sometimes put myself in in a manager's shoes or you know assistant manager's shoes and a lot of their responsibilities and you're playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, relentlessly, forty six league game season cups things like that. So to be able to have have someone who's kind of focus or their eye is on those lads that perhaps aren't playing every game but you're looking to develop them, you're looking them to get them in the team every game. Then I think that's important. But then similarly, which is which is more of my role now, which is is academy based. 23s, 18s, some of the best schoolboys beneath that. That's what an academy is there for. Um, I think my my opinion is I, I'm a big fan of winning. I want to win, and I think the winning is important in development and trying to win. Um, but also the productivity of an academy is, is who comes through, who gets into that first team. I think it's great to be proud of having so many in, in the football league or you know certain things like that, but how many can we get into our first team, which is what we're there to do. Um, so so from an academy basis now, we can kind of look at, we think him, him or him, they've got a really good chance. What do they need to get them there? Um, and I think that's that's what the roles become really. Um, you know, if you get, a, you get a young lad into a Premier League first team these days, they're worth tens of millions of pounds straight away. So there's there's a massive investment and business case to uh, to do that. Yeah, the... the... I suppose a real talking point over here in US culture is the the promotion relegation and the lack of it, what that takes away in the development of a US player. But it's almost exemplified with the pressure of the high stakes in the Premier League. Once they go into that world of Premier League football, massive, massive, massive pressure. And when they're at moving from that transition from development to professional, is there how do you prepare the player to live with in that intensity of pressure? I think um, it's a good question. Uh, th- there's a lot of 
things that go into a player, talking about where I work at the moment at Sheffield United, there's, there's a lot of good work that goes on, not just from the coaches, um, but the support staff around the players as well. So, you know, even within the lads' educations when they're doing scholarship, they're taught why. They're taught the why they're, they're told to eat these certain things. They're given lifestyle advice. They're given financial advice and, and kind of given this knowledge now, whether they take that or not, that that's down to the individual really and they're, they're listening and their application. But they're given the tools to be able to be successful. Like you say, when you get into that environment with the pressure, um, I've not played Premier League football. Um, so it's important to give them the tools and the knowledge to be successful when they get there. Now, there are players and coaches in the building that can give them that advice on, on the situations and environments that they're going to find themselves in. Um, but it's our jobs to, to make, make them resilient, I think, as characters as well. Take them out of their comfort zones. You know, sometimes put them under a bit of pressure in training. Really expose them to their weaknesses sometimes because you can guarantee if you've got a young centre-half and you're playing against a top, top, top team, their best striker is going to come and play on him for 10 minutes to try and suss him out. And there's no hiding place then. So so you need to expose them to this, whether it be in training, whether it be in, in certain situations, that it's tough and re really character building because then when you know they can deal with that, you know you can trust them a little bit and then the whole job along the way from nine right the way through is to give them those tools to be able to deal with it tactically technically and those sort of things but if you've got that character in a player as well then yeah mentality is uh huge mm. i said there before we've as a community football probably slow moving towards the individual is there has there been other sports or is there certain environments that you've kind of visited in your studies to to try and pinch a thing or two with the role? I, I wouldn't say I've looked at other other sports specifically. I mean, you know, picked up little bits and you know, this this period that we've had now, this this lockdown period has been brilliant in terms of learning because otherwise, you know, sometimes we just sat at home with, with not loads to do. Um, but I've done a bit of research more into like the skill acquisition side of things, which I guess is a little bit more academic than, than what I'm used to looking at. But speaking to even professors and things like that who've worked in different sports and talking about how do, how do players learn? Um, what's the best way to develop skill within them? And, and, and I've, I've read a really good book called The Playmaker's Advantage, and I, I'd recommend that to anyone. Um, it was recommended to me by someone at the FA, and they talk about the uh, search, decide, execute. So... When you're searching, you know, you're scanning, you're looking for, for, for cues. A decision you'll make as a 15-year-old player is probably different to what you'll make as a 25-year-old player because of your experiences that you've had and recognising patterns or situations or moments in games or or trying certain things with the ball on the edge of your own box. You might try that at 15. You won't do it when you're 25 because circumstances dictate otherwise. So improving players' perception to improve their decision-making and then aligning that with top-class technical execution and, and then you've got a player that you've really got a player then so trying to look at those three strands really uh, perception decisions and, and execution is, is what i've come to with all this kind of research that i've been doing but i think the other the other thing that that you need as well is a real intensity in your in your training um a challenging environment i'm sure you and I have seen it and, and others on this chat will have seen it the, the Michael Jordan documentary recently I know it's very topical to talk about but 
that's a real tough challenging environment but it made people better people talk about you know the top top teams and top clubs training's harder than the games you know you, you can't performance isn't a tap that you can just turn on at saturday at three o'clock um, or saturday morning whenever, you, whenever your team's playing so those habits those environments those cultures i think uh, are, are massive um, and intensity in your training really brings about improvements in players they have to think quicker and they have to execute better and that that for me is a good player yeah staying on that with the with the balls i mean i've, I've spoken to a lot of people about phil jackson and, and we'd, we'd all love to be phil jackson with a more laid-back approach but it's probably because he has someone like michael jordan and we had michael or sorry with jesse marsh on here who talked about the role of senior players in that development process. So during the education, I suppose the education of a player can can go on and on and on, but how much or how important is it for that young professional to get that peer-to-peer learning at a, from experienced pros at the club? I, I, I think it's, it's massive. It can't be underestimated how, how important that influence is. Um, you know, they've lived it and they've breathed it. Um, we talk about, and, and, and my boss at Sheffield United's gentleman, uh, Jack Lester, um, and he's been brilliant for me in, in shaping my mind and challenging me with certain things. And he always says that you can't, you can't teach until you've learned. So we're using this period now particularly to do a lot of studying into, into the game. And I mean in, in real, real detail. So spending hours on looking at how, what, how does a player win an attacking flick on? Or how are the best midfielders? How does how does Kante intercept every time? What's the technique? What are the traits of the best? And how do they do it? Um, and now we'll spend hours and hours and hours learning this and, and trying to give that nugget of information to a player to, to get an adjustment, to get an improvement, to develop them and, and to make them better. But these senior pros that have lived it and have breathed it, instant buy-in from younger pros or younger players straight away, but it's also relevant and they you know these players can relate to it and i think that their their influence is huge even just seeing how they behave around the training ground you know when they go in the gym and how how they apply themselves mentality is huge and there's no coincidence that a lot of these these top players have got top mentalities and uh, the more you can get that into your younger players the more they can observe it and, and feel it because when they're young it's it's there and you try and tell them what it's like when they get there but they don't know because they've never seen it they haven't experienced it someone that has been there that tells them about it or has seen it as a coach or as a player you get a bit more credibility then i think and you get quick adjustments in terms of setting targets and goals for players do you think you know make the first team can be a little bit too general for a young professional and can even hold them back because it's back to almost the playing time mentality of something that you can't control like how important is it to incorporate weekly goals and objectives with those young individuals? Um, I think it's about, I mean, that's the end goal, isn't it? Particularly if you're talking about academy players. That's the end goal. And I think you've got to have the end goal in mind. But where a 12-year-old, a 15, even 17-18-year-old might be in, in their journey of their development to make the first team, the key is to me, how do you connect the dots? So you know what the angle is. Let's work back from there. So we're saying that this player can do X, Y, Z. These are his strengths. We can refine them and we can keep working on them. What can't he do? What does he need to, to do to be able to play in, in our team, the way we play, the, the values and the philosophy that our 
our first team staff that they have and work back from that. Um, and then that, that's almost targeting their development then. So I'm working on this with you now because this, this, this. This is what we demand of you. This is a fundamental of your position at the top level of the game where you want to get to. So I think the goal of getting to the first team, I think I think you can work with that, but then it's the connecting the dots in between. And then the player's got the why. They know why they're doing something. And in my experience, you get that little bit more understanding, that more buy-in, and you get more intensity to the training session then which like I say you get developed players with that intensity the part of the development in terms of the transition I would imagine is that as they get exposed to the senior game there's no vast amount of data information even tactically that they're going to be the, the discussions that they're going to be involved in alongside pressure alongside the noise the distractions is there an educational component uh, along the way then? Like silly things, like how do you read a heat map? How do you understand XG? When does that come into their development? Um, I think, and again, to, to kind of speak about the education of the sports science department, the analysts that, that play a big part in that, in the environment that I work in, the players do get a lot of information. I mean, there's, there's a good group of the scholars that, that do the UAKB B license. Um, I think a level two is a, is a essential, you know, within a, an education. So within those courses, those components, then they do get exposed to you know tactical frameworks as, as well as obviously the the development as players within the within the academy. Um, they're also given a lot of education work by our head of education, which is just around, like I say, the things like like diets, the things like how their body works, how their body recovers. A lot of statistical things are given to them as well in terms of their game. Players can get their data in terms of physical, in terms of technical from, from games as well. And, and I've noticed a shift in my kind of 10, 12 years with professional football. <laughs> players want to know. They want to know what this data is and they ask a lot of questions. And if they feel that it's relevant and important to them, they want to know how they can make that better as well. So um, there's a definite, yeah, definite increase in, in awareness and understanding of a lot of this data. But I think it's just you as a coach, then the art is emphasising what you see as important or educating them in, right, this one's important for you, this one's important for you. I really like the stuff on the webinar you did the other week with uh, Jesse Marsh and he was talking about the, the player agreements. We expect the player to do this in every game or this in every session. And, you know, that that will give an understanding uh, to a player of those type of metrics, things like that. So um, they're fully aware that they're monitored and they want to know their data. But I think that you have to give them the why. You've always got to give the why and, and what's important, definitely. Do you think that we're moving, you know, let's talk about the street footballer being gone uh, today and, and in the UK. Do you think that we're moving away from, like, I was telling you, there's some of the shows I've caught up with. So I watched the thing on Gascoigne a, a couple of weeks ago and just the way, like, no interest in... I think when he went to Lazio, he forgot his he forgot his running shoes for his medical. So he did his medical and, like, his, his, his regular shoes. <laughs> Can that player not exist today? Because, like, you have to understand the, the science behind to a basic level or you have to have a an understanding of how you're going to consume information? Do you need a base level now, do you think? Good question, that. Um, 
think there'll always be space for the Maverick, won't there? Yeah. I think it's, you know, that I'm, I'm putting myself in, in the position now where I'm thinking Coach Gazza, like, like you just used as an example. Gazza's mind and his genius is much more developed and will see things than, than I could probably sit down with him. I might have to rewind and look at that and then see, did you see this, did you see that? But the creative genius in the game and comes back to that search the side and execute and they're able to their perception of that moment to make that decision and then be able to execute it perfectly that's what makes them a creative genius and i guess then it's up to that coach manager whatever you want to to put the framework around them to be able to express themselves as best as possible so you know the game has moved and it has changed absolutely but the game is still all about winning if you've got a genius that helps you win then there's always going to be space for that i think back to us the dennis Rabo one right yeah, yeah, um, Sheffield United, it's a club that looks to have, again, outside looking in, looks to have a really powerful identity in terms of the traditional values. Are there certain components of lifestyle or attitude that are continually emphasised in that environment, either directly or indirectly to the players? Um, yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I'm I'm not from Sheffield. I'm I'm from Cardiff, so I'm I'm from a good 200 miles away from from there. So I'm, I'm an outsider to the city. So so when I've taken the role there, I've, I'm getting used to a new place, and it's a it's a brilliant city, really really nice city. But it's built on on industry, you know, particularly the steel industry. The, the club's called the Blades. It's the steel city. Um, so there's a real what my from an outsider being new to it, understanding a real desire and drive to stick to that identity of, of hard work and the non-negotiables, desire, desire to, to win. Um, and I think that's that's the main thing that I've kind of learned from it. Um, I, I love watching our first team. You know, like I say, my role is not with, with our first team. It's to try and get our best academy players into that group. Um, but I love watching them because there's, there's real aggression all over the pitch and an understanding of what their roles are and a real I'm doing this job for me and my mate I, I, I call it doing a job and a half so you're doing your job but you're also ready to help your mate out if he gets exposed or someone skips by him and you know, never pulling out of tackles and, and those real fundamentals of the game that, that are so often overlooked and I found it myself I've, I've spent time looking at sometimes systems for so long and I think well you know the systems are important but if he misses a tackle or he doesn't track a runner, doesn't matter what your system is, you're going to get exposed and you're going to have an overload against you. So those those real fundamentals, which I identify with with the city, in my opinion, from what from what I've seen, uh, yeah, they're huge at the football club and they get really they get pressed onto onto the players and and were certainly pressed on me as a new member of staff going in there and and I've learned a lot from that. I've learned a lot. I feel like I'm a better coach, better understanding of the game. Um, and I can really respect that, how the team identifies itself with this city and its history, definitely. I didn't know about how good the development, like the, I suppose, the history, tradition of development at Sheffield United with Nick Montgomery came on about a year ago. And, and then I started looking at who came through Sheffield and I thought, wow. And sometimes, and I wonder then, why do I, why was I not aware of that there? And I think I start to put the values that you said and then, Sometimes we look at Barcelona and their technical values, but when you when you watch the class of '92, like 
Ferguson's approach to hard work and those same values were all there as well. So maybe that's something that are we overlooking as coaches, do you think? Um, I mean, you know, to play the top level of the game, you have to be able to look after the football, don't you? You can't, you can't go there and just run around and be aggressive. There has to be a structure to you and you have to be able to deal with the football when you get it. But yeah, but, but those fundamentals, they're massive. They're absolutely massive to you and mentality and, and, and how many times have you flicked on the TV over the years, put the FA Cup on or whatever, and you, and you see a team from the lower leagues beat the team in the top league and you think, well, they don't really fancy it, but then this team really, really do. And you're all right, that, that's an upset and it might not happen every time. But but those those fundamentals of everyone being on the same page, in, individuals accepting and taking accountability for their 1v1 duels. I'm a wing back. I'm not letting my winger get crosses in today or I'm a midfielder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run all over my opposite man. You know, and, and then when I get the ball, I'm going to be able to deal with it, and I'm going to whatever my tactical job is in that. I think it's massive, and and I think that that accountability uh, aspect is is huge. And, and if I'm setting a team up one day in the future, that would be a big, big part of what I would expect of, of my players. Um, that trust, that accountability, and those relationships across the pitch as well, doing a job and a half for you and your mate. A typical week in the life. For yourself, not not right now, but prior to lockdown, whenever you're you're going in on the on the Monday morning, how much have you planned who you're going to impact that week, or how much space do you leave for the informal to see who's feeling what where? It's um yeah, it's, it's a really quite um what's the right word flexible flexible is probably not the right word, but I'll try and describe it as best I can. But you know the the role is quite new. Um, it's a new one to the club that I'm at. It's a new one within the game, really. Um, it's certainly different having done it previously at a first team level to now doing it at, at academy level. There's certainly differences to that. Um, but I think that you know, and, and most academy coaches, I think, that are probably in the room, most have got an idea like this one's got a chance, he's got a chance, he's got a chance, he's got a chance. And you're probably looking to try and catch them ones in the corridor a little bit more than others. Um, so to give you an idea of a typical kind of day, um, we'll get players in half seven in the morning for individual work. Um, and I love that. I love that morning session because by half past eight, they've probably already done an hour's more practice than their competitors who were just strolling into their training grounds elsewhere. And I think that's a massive psychological edge to them. Um, don't get me wrong, not everyone liked it at the start, but we, we get there. So... That's very individual. That's around, you know, detail, very in-depth detail of, of that player in his development, what you're working on within position-specific work. Um, half ten, then we'll have a, you know, a main session, if you want to call it that, and and I'll tend to either work with the under-18s, under-23s, wherever I'm, I'm kind of needed, really, and whether that's just taking 20 minutes, half an hour of the session, whether it's taking all of the session, depending on the day and, and who's available. If it's a day where... I'm just kind of observing. Then I'll pick out the two or three that I think have got a chance. And every time there's a break in play, you're giving them, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Can you try this different? Remember what we worked on and, and giving them that feedback all the time. So you're trying to get adjustments. In the afternoon then, we it's more unit work. So midfielders might work together, strikers, finishing, defenders, whatever it is. And then in the evenings, then you've got your kind of your schoolboy stuff. Um, we're, we're lucky we've got some very good players there and really good to work with. Um, so there's, there's a lot of delivery. 
Um, but in that time around that delivery, I think that the video is really important. Getting the clips from the analysts and sitting down with those players that have got a chance and, and reviewing game footage, reviewing training footage, showing them clips of the best. So if I've got a striker and we're working on his, his movement, well, let's go and study the best the movement because then he's in half seven tomorrow morning and we're going to work on exactly that. So it's fresh in his mind and then he's going to take that into his half 10 session. So, you know, that, that constant loop and, and expert feedback, breeding habits and, and getting development, I think. So that that's kind of a typical day. So it is it is under mile an hour, but there is a little bit, I think, of strategy as well in, in you know, I want to make sure I pass him in the corridor or mm. I'll put him plug my plate next to his because there's a space next to him at lunch and, and speak about this or ask him to come and see me in 10 minutes because I've got some video clips, you know, things like that. So, yeah, that's a, that's a typical day, really. Murray has asked, and I, and I think this is what I asked you when I, when I met you a couple of months ago about the balance and the science on top of that. At what stage do you, with the additional sessions, uh, how... You know, is there a dialogue continually or is it the start of the week or how does that incorporate? Yeah, it's just built into our structure of our programme. So we know that we do it. You know, I've previous previous roles, I've, I've just worked in the physical side of the game um, at senior and, and academy level. Um, so I like to think I've got a decent understanding of that. Um, but I've definitely seen players pushed and worked harder and taken out of comfort zones a lot over the last year. And Touchwood, I've not seen any repercussions from that. I've seen real development, though, real development. And we talk about that intensity. You know, if, if players don't press properly, I mean, with a real desire to go win that ball, the person on the ball has got that split second more time to make his decision. And then when he does ever have an adjustment, he jumps up to first team level. If he ever gets to train with him, he's not used to it. So we have to create that intensity within our training sessions, whether it be morning, uh, afternoon, whenever that is. And I think that's really important. And in terms of, of the loading, yeah, you know, we're, we're mindful of it, but I think we kind of, um, we want to challenge these players. If you look at some of the best players that have, have been developed, come through academies, and, and I'm, I'm taking this from, I won't name him because I didn't get this information, someone else did from, from a third party, but a real high profile academy director, and I totally agree with it sat around and they said, what players get through? The players that can, can go and they can go again and they can bang out the games and they can go and they can go again. And, and I think that that's not only a, a mental thing, but that's, that's a physical thing as well. And, you know, we need to create that robustness in our players. Um, so absolutely things are measured. Absolutely things are considered. People aren't reckless and wild and just keep going, keep going. But we do we do want to challenge and take out our comfort zones as well because whenever they get in that first team environment and there's forty thousand screaming and they're away from home and they're tired and their and their legs are like jelly and they, they can't make decisions quite as quickly, have they got that resilience, that mental character and that toughness to to keep going? Or are they gonna fold and give in and cost the team three points and cost people their jobs or relegations and millions of pounds we're talking? So, you know, we have to we have to create that character with, with what we do in our environment and I'm I'm really Big believe in that. Staying on the character, then I wanted to throw this quote at you from Gareth Bale. We're kind of robots. We're told where to be, when to be, what time to eat, what time to go to the coach. It's kind of like you lose your life in a way. You're just kind of told what to do. I thought that was really interesting. I wanted to get your thoughts on how 
a club gets the balance right between detailed professional processes and then not creating robots who can't think for themselves at the same time. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that quote. Um, obviously, being Welsh, Gareth gets quite a lot of press around here. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he's obviously talking about the off the field stuff. His how many Champions Leagues has he won now? Is it four at Madrid? So, all right, it might be a little bit robotic in thinking, right, this meal time, this time down to this room and that room. But they're clearly a bunch of players that can make good decisions when they're on the pitch. Um, and whether that's come from their education, from their environment, however they've got to that point, I think having those professional processes are massively important in place because it's a team game. It's not an individual. So in a team, you don't want one of those cogs to let you down and constantly be being late and constantly not have the information. So it's important to have those processes and that organisation in place. But when it comes to on the pitch and training, then you want decision makers. And I think if you've got your environment right and your, edu you know, your educational processes around that right, your team meetings right, then you, you still get decision makers. But just maybe they do walk zombie like from meeting to, to lunch. As long as when they're on the pitch, they make the right decisions, and it's about winning, and that's that's the important part. Brilliant. Um, working in the championship, and and now the the level of the Premier League, wanted to get your thoughts on what what area do you think are the key differences? Like what separates a, a championship player to a Premier League player? Um, yeah, I mean, like to say the. I don't work directly with a first team in, in this role. I, you know, I don't want to sit here and, and make out that I'm involved in their training sessions day in day out. But I do get to see them play a lot. Um, and one of the things about working in Sheffield, my family is still down in Cardiff, so if there's evenings where I can get to games and stuff, I've got to take in a lot of games and Champions League games as well around around the area. Um, speed of thought, huge, massive. That athleticism is, is massive, but I think that teams can beat you in in more ways. So, like, you look at, um, obviously, Liverpool have, have blown the league away this year. They've been unbelievable. What is it, like, 26 pages? Is it 25-1-1 drawn? I might be wrong with that. I'm sure I'll see in the chat now. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong. I could well be wrong with that, so I apologise if I am. But they can beat you anyway. They can they can fight you. They can be aggressive. They're big, they're strong. They can, they can run you in behind if you want to play a high line. They've got the technicians that they can play through you. They can beat you in every way. And these top teams have got more more strings. And, you know, working in the championship week in the hours, such a brilliant education because every team is is different in the sense of, you know, you, you, one week you'll come up against 4-4-2 that just whack it and they play uh, back to front. And that brings a different challenge to a possession-based team. And... But those teams have, have generally got their way of winning, their way of, of doing it. You come to them top, top teams that you see in the Premier League, like Liverpool as an example. Well, all right, we're going to go high press on them. All right, well, Mane and, uh, and Salah are going to run in behind you then. All right, well, we're going to play deep. Well, OK, now you're giving space to Firmino to drop in whilst those two, and then the fullbacks getting high and wide and that unbelievable delivery from wide areas. So, there's so many ways they can do it. And uh, that speed of thought, the understanding of the team's, being able to change the pace really quickly when you think, oh, we've got them here, we've got them, we've got them, bang, break the lines, turn, and they're in. Um, yeah, it's been really fascinating to see those top teams and they've just got so many more strings. The players are more more complete. They can do 
more of what they need to do rather than have one or two strengths they've got five or six so it's the cat and mouse element is so interesting to watch and then as soon as someone's exposed bang you get punished two seasons ago you were uh you saw man study up close to bristol study and mm. you had a tweet that said that you you i think there was a lot i should have wrote this down there's a lot about 95 percent of it you were it was a nil-nil game or if it was it was a tie game um and you learned a lot over the games i wanted to ask you what was your what were your biggest insight your takeaways when you're watching that level like real time okay um i'll answer this and i'll probably bolt this first bit onto the back end of the last question to be honest because as i as i start waffling i remembered something that, uh, that i wanted to say um i've i've been lucky enough to work with with a few players previously at you know different clubs that have gone on and, and played premier league and international football and you know you keep in touch and i like to say to them what's the difference for you um physically in terms of total distance and, and high intensity distance there might be differences but they're, they're not extreme you know a midfielder might run 11 he doesn't run 22 in the premier league they're not extreme differences but i asked i asked the players that have made that jump what's the difference for you and they talk about it's that mental fatigue they talk about in terms of i cannot switch off i cannot switch off at any point because the moment i do it will be noticed and i'll be punished by the best players in the world so that concentration level and mental fatigue is probably the big, big difference, I think, with with the players that made that jump up into the Premier League. So I just wanted to add that onto the last bit. And, and we've seen... Sorry, Man- just, on, just on that, from and obviously from the background that you have on the science element as well, do you think we're ever going to be able to, to get real-time information on mental fatigue? Or are we closer to understanding when that's happening to a player? I don't know. I don't know is the honest answer. I, I mean, I could try and sit here and waffle something, and which I've done for the last forty-five minutes. Um, but I, I don't. I don't know is the honest answer. I mean, the data that comes into dugouts now is is the most it's ever been. Obviously, you've only been allowed it for what a year or two, something like that. And um, you get physical data, your technical data, whether psychological data or whether people will be able to start identifying trends. Um, I'd looked into something. Like PhD when I was playing around with numbers before about um, splitting the game into five minute segments and then looking at if high intensity distance drops down per position but then I couldn't say to you that's because of um, mental fatigue or physical fatigue um, I couldn't differentiate but you know couldn't differentiate between the two so I don't know but it's obviously a huge part like I say a player's perception and their understanding of what's going on in that moment of the game will allow them to make better decisions. And once they've made that decision on what their action is going to be and how they execute it as a top player, if you've got someone who makes good decisions for 95 minutes and then he executes those with, with top, top quality, then that's a, that's a top, top player you've got there. So if, if we can get to that point where we can measure it, it will be unbelievable in terms of what we'll find and what we'll then be trying to develop from within our players, definitely. Right, sorry, I interrupted you there about the City Bristol City game. Yeah, yeah, it was, oh, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, you know, seeing them that that closer, um, being in around the preparation and the study that went into into them as well. You know, tactically and, and things like that. Um, like I said, with one of the last answers, talking about the best players in the world, they're a big group of the best players, in the, and they can do they can do it all. That's why they're the best players in the world. That's why they cost. 
tens of millions of pounds, some of them worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, so composed as well. That's the one thing that's, that stuck out to me about the Man City players. I mean, you know, for us that at the time, that was a big challenge, a challenging game playing the champions, the best team. And we did really well. You know, we went one up away from home. They equalise and then they score in like the ninety four to, to win. Sorry, excuse me, I don't know why. Am I still there? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Sorry, the phone started going off then, mate. Um, yeah, and we um, we lost two one right at the end of the game. They never looked flustered, but I felt the anxiety, like you know, that you feel from the side of the pitch. Second game, it was two one. We lost three two again to a last minute thing, but we scored in the ninetieth minute. So we're thinking, well, come on, a bit of pressure on them now and maybe we can win it. And they just went up the other end and scored to make it 3-2. So th- their composure and their understanding of, you know, their relationships within the team, I know they they do a lot of what you've got one of the best managers ever. And, and it's so clear to see the patterns that they work on, but the understanding and the timing and the relationships all across the pitch from midfielder to his wide men, to the defenders behind him, the strikers in front of him, they were so in sync. Um, and that obviously helps with that decision-making process. You know, the ball goes from A to B and C and D already know where it's going and what they're looking to do. Um, and it was so fascinating to see up close. Uh, managed to get a little bit of time with their coaching staff and the manager afterwards and just to listen to them talk a little bit. That was, that was fascinating. So, yeah, you take loads from moments like that. Was there any alongside their composure... Like he he's not always composed on the on the sideline. Were any behaviours for you that stood out for his timing or or how he was doing it? Um, no, I, I don't think I don't think I really noticed. If, if I'm completely honest, because like I said, that you could probably always say that they felt that they were in control. Um, I remember speaking to one of their players after the first game, um, just like in the tunnel after the game, and. And I asked him the question, I said, oh, what was half-time like for you? Was it, did you get a bit rollicking? No, no, it was very laid back. We spoke about what we need to do and very calculated. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Because, you know, sometimes a Premier League team being one down the championship team at home, there might have been a bit of aggression seen in the dressing room half-time. And, and he said there wasn't. Um, stuck to their game plan. So, yeah, that, that was interesting, I think. I think my, my eyes were too drawn to what was going on on the pitch and, and, you know, all the problems we were facing there to then look down and see what was going on in the other technical area at times, really. But, yeah, it, it, was, it was fascinating. It was, it was brilliant. And, you know, it, it gives you that real hunger to want to compete with those, those teams and those people, those coaches every week. Mm. Interesting appointment there. I saw yesterday where he's got uh, Lillo as, as his new assistant coach. That's going to be... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you probably have those pet confidential books that is it martin and Bernal or, yeah, yeah. um brilliant books unbelievable insight and he talks about him so kind of fondly even in those books doesn't he from years ago so yeah that'll probably make him uh, a bit stronger <laughs> uh last couple for you here what about lockdown with the players they always ask the coaches here i mean what what type of communication have you had ongoing in the last couple of months uh it's, it's been it's been difficult you, you know it's it is hard. There's no sugarcoating it, really. Um, we develop players by training them and practicing, you know. Um, but yeah, we, we've kept in touch. The, the, the physical team have, have been, you know, giving them their programs, and they, they've kept on top of them. And and I like to keep a little look on who's doing it and who's sometimes not doing it, and who does it first thing in the morning and who does it last thing at night. 
because I think that's an insight into the characters as well. Um, so the physical sports science team have been brilliant in keeping them up to scratch with those. The analysts have, have been putting loads of videos together. You know, like I said, this as frustrating as it's been, this, this time as, from a learning environment as coaches has been brilliant because we're really studying that detail and, and the analysts have put together great video resources looking into you know, like the dark arts of defending, study Chiellini, study Godin, what, not what they do when they make contact with the ball, what they doing in the five seconds before that, you know, really looking at this, this detail and so their resources for the players and players have seen some of those, things like that, keeping in touch with them, video clips, like I say, and sometimes just a general, how are you? How's your family? Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's been relentless every single day and whatnot. But, yeah, kept in touch, checked how they are, giving them a little bit of food for thought with their movements, if they're a striker or, or things like that. I've actually had a couple even texting, asking for session plans for some individual work that they want to do because, you know, they're, they've got their brother and they've got a net and they can get to the local pitch, things like that. So, yeah, it's been, it's been nice to keep in touch. But I think everyone's itching now just to be able to get back to work. A couple of questions there, just to wrap it up with with the coaches. Um, one from from Roshan, Rahirish. By your definition of a well educated player, do you categorise youth players differently if one player is more skilled at execution and the other is more skilled at decision making? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say more educated, but I think that's a brilliant platform to be able to go and and pinpoint what you're focusing on in their development. So. And that's why I've really resonated and I really like this search, decide, execute, this kind of, this this loop. You know, play, you think players are constantly in this in the game. They're constantly taking in information. They're off the ball. What's the score? Where are they on the pitch? Are they home? Are they away? Is momentum with them? Is it not? Scoreline, um, tactical systems, opposition, a weak link or a strength or whatever. So, so you've got this constant cycle of, of perception that they're looking around and taking in this information and, and the better their understanding of those moments the better their decisions will be and then comes the execution the execution might be pass tackle run shoot whatever um and i think that it can help you pinpoint where you're developing the player so if i've got a player that's technically excellent but the pass never gets from a, uh, a to b that might not be the technical thing that might be his decision making in the build up to that it might be creating his space to be able to or getting his body at a different angle to be able to hit that pass it might be in his receiving skills whatever if I've got a player that makes fantastic decisions and sees the pass but it never quite gets there well then that's a technical thing that I need to focus on with him so I think that it really helps bullet point what you're working on with the player so it's a great question but I think it actually helps from a coaching point of view what you're going in and what you're looking to to refine because Sometimes you've only got to make small adjustments and the players go, yeah, I get that. And if they get a little bit of success quite quickly, you've, you've made an adjustment and you've got development and you've got a better player. So I'm guessing with that whole argument or discussion around opposed unopposed work, there is that, that execution work can still take place unopposed and the repetition still there. I, I think it depends like, you know, where, where your players at. I, I, I I like more of the work to be done opposed. But if you've got someone who can't kick it with his left foot, his right foot, it just cannot work off the opposite foot, well, then you're going to pitch it at that level where it's going to be unopposed. And it's just the repetition and the striking and really breaking it down. I'm, I'm talking, you know, baby steps here. 
democracy. Um, if you've got someone who's adequate, well then stick into some opposition against that. Because then the more intensity that they press him with in a possession or even in a passing drill, player passes A to B, but he sprints at him and presses him. So then they've got to shift their first touch away from the press to be able to play to the next station, whatever. That creates a little bit of a greater challenge for them. So you're talking about your constraints and, and things like that then. So that's a big, big part. Um, and then when you get into your, your kind of possessions, how you overload it or you underload it, it is based on where you feel that that group is. You know, in I've worked with coaches before and they talk about possessions at a top level being kind of six square yards per active defender. And that always kind of stuck in my mind. I was like, okay, so when I'm working area sizes, I'd like to work with that. But if I'm working with, you know, the under-14s, they might not be quite ready for that yet. You know, some of them are going for growth spurts, their coordination's not there. So you might go eight square yards for active defender and then make it tighter or smaller, depending on how many opposition players or pressers you've got in that possession or whatever. So it gives you a guideline of, of what to work off, I think. So to answer that, yeah, I, I prefer a pose because then you're teaching decisions as well and you're, and you're teaching technical execution under pressure. But if you've got a player that is at, at such low level that you're going to kill their confidence by giving them too much pressure they can't deal with that, well then, yeah, obviously strip it back and start from the, the basics. And then in, the, in terms of the search, giving feedback on that element, is that is it predominantly done with video to look back on that there or is that really done in their ear as well? Both. Yeah. Both. I, I think concurrent coaching, uh, that's the term that I was given on my license about that. So as it's happening and it's live, I think that's massive during the game. Um, I think that the video reinforces that. So sometimes I like to give it as soon as it happens, mention it during a break, and then afterwards we can show the video. So it's it's kind of fresh and you go over it again. Um, yeah, there's there's so many ways to, to do that. Mark Gregg has asked, basically, do you think there can be too much information given to players uh, through training that can make the game too complicated for them? Um, yeah, sometimes, yeah. yeah I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, one thing that I'm kind of fascinated by at the minute is, is the art of communication and that whole psychology thing. So I like to think of, of coaching as, as like, it's a bit corny, I know, but the best way I can kind of think to describe it is, is like this iceberg. So you only see the top of the iceberg and, and that underneath it though is is huge. And that that's a coach's knowledge. So the coach's knowledge underneath that, the more studying they've done, the real detail that they know, there's a whole lot of knowledge there. But the player only really, really needs to hear simple, effective, concise feedback and language. Because if you start waffling or going off on tangents or talking, you've lost them. I've lost everyone in the room already, maybe. I've been waffling so long. Um, but, you know, why say something in three minutes that you can say in three words and it means the same thing and play, and, and a player will remember it then so yeah i think it can be overcomplicated by certain things but then that's that the art of language and how you say it when you say it tone things like that is, is really really important in getting your message across and getting learning i think from players is there any uh, post-game processes that you're encouraging the players to do to try and get them a little bit more into the reflective end of things? Um, I think the analysts do a lot of that, to be fair. I wouldn't want to take credit for what they do. Um, I think a lot of my kind of 
personal input then is is in the week, like we said earlier on, grabbing them and going through the video and, and talking about <clears throat> X, Y, or Z. Um, I think they do do some reflective work in their reviews, you know, every kind of six weeks blocks and, and, and things like that. Um, it's not a struct drive put in place yet, but not, not really have the time to put that one in. Mark has asked about, oh no, I skipped on. Um, oh no, it's deleted. Oh no, he hasn't, there it is. Sorry, John has asked about, you mentioned the speed of thought being key at the top level. How do you improve a player's speed of thought and therefore their speed of actions in a game or a drill? What kind of drills would you do? You've just got to expose them. You've got to expose them to doing things specific to them as well. You know, so but an example I always give, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday in, in a busy competitive league, You've got your 11 that are playing most games, so they'll they'll play, recover, prepare, play, recover, prepare, play. That's that's their cycle. And then you've got this group of 10 players kind of in and around that as well. So because they're never too far from the next game, you, they never do too much work in terms of their training because, well, they might be picked for the next one. You, you, you don't quite know. So then this training become a little bit generic. Well, small-sided games, that'll get the intensity from them. But then if you're using the example of a winger, they're never getting the, the opportunity then. And I've, I've used this example a couple of times, so apologies if people have heard me say it before, but they're never facing up the fullback and getting at him and, and dry, or whether it be driving to the byline or, or fainting to cut inside and get a shot off. And that's specific to him. Yet in two weeks' time, he might have to play in front of 30,000 and be good at that. Otherwise, he's back on the bench again. So in terms of improving their speed of thought, we need to expose the people to what they're going to be needed to do, what they're effectively going to be judged on. And that, that all comes back down to practice design then, I think. So if you want, if you want to work on, on players, you know, a midfielder making runs from deep to getting behind a defence, well then work in one half of a pitch in maybe a 20 by 30, but then he's still got half a pitch to run into. You, you know what I mean? So it, within your the session design and, and how you set up that area size, if you're working on, on runs in the box to, to get on the end of crosses, well, have a, a shorter distance, 20, 25 yards, but it's full width. So you're encouraging a lot of balls recycled to the outside and then third, you know, runners getting across defenders, whether it be strikers or, or a midfield late runner. So the art of, of that, how you set up your practice, will get certain returns for what you want to work on. I, it's a bit of a long-winded way of saying it, I know, especially when I've just spoken about being concise with your wording, but... Um, yeah, I've, once you expose them to those actions and you give expert feedback to them, then you're going to get better decisions and, and better technical output as well because they're getting more repetition to it. Mm. Oh, that's a great that way. Players are a great example, the wingers, because normally you do get the periodized programs are to get that player who's on the periphery match fit is 4v4, 5v5. And the, yeah, they're they're not seeing the same pictures, so it could be detrimental. It could help them physically, but be detrimental to other areas of the game. And, and pic pictures is 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 the right word for that that moment. So going back to to John's question about, I'm just reading it at the side now. Speed of thought. The more that you see something, the more you recognise the cues. You'll recognise the the body shape of. So you you might be a striker now. The more you see the wing your winger's body shape, the more you recognise that right, that's the cross he's going to put in. Or he's going to the byline, so I'm recognising the picture that might need to peel off to the back now or step back for a cutback delivery. 
So the more pictures that you see, the more cues you recognize, so that when it becomes in games, it becomes rather than um, consciously aware of it, you're subconsciously aware of it. And I'm sort of like football braining, I'm talking now, the brain of behind type stuff, I know. But, you know, rec recognizing those pictures in games will help you to make quicker decisions. And if you're doing that at high intensity and you're able to deal with the football, well, then you're all right. Last one for you. Ad advice for coaches and, and based off of the, you talked about the detail that, that you guys were doing at the minute and trying to break everything down and something that I think as coaches, it's always good to challenge what we're doing as well. I mean, what, what advice would you have for coaches to not just to get to the level, but also to, to improve the detail in their eye? Just, just watch it. Um, and, and that's what's been brilliant about, about, I mean, you know, I've been challenged to look at detail for a while, especially in this kind of individual development role. Um, so obviously at first team level, but but now working at Sheffield United as well within the academy, it's been it's been a brilliant environment that's really challenged you. And you know, if you're going to go away and you're going to work with someone on whatever aspect of their game it is, unless you were Zinedine in Zidane or Lionel Messi and you just know it because you're already an expert at it, you've got to go and you've got to learn it. And I come back to that that phrase that Jack always uses because I thought it makes so much sense. You can't teach until you've learned. So we, there's so many resources now and videos available online. Go and study it and go and really, really learn it. And some of the stuff that the coaches that I work with now and, and the analysts have put together has been brilliant. You know, and, and we've all got strengths and weaknesses. Um, we'll all feel more comfortable delivering a topic on one thing than another. So it's about preparing yourself because, you know, everyone wants to get to the best level that they possibly can and, and when you do get there, you will be challenged by better players with, with better know-how. But if your knowledge is is good and, and you're accurate with what you're saying, well, then you're giving yourself the best platform to be the best coach you can be, I think. Sorry. Brilliant. Reese, thank you very much. That was great. Enjoyed that. No, it's great. It's, um, like I say, it's a pleasure to be on there. I didn't, I didn't say at the start, but it's... Um, it's our anniversary today and I, I said to my wife we were doing the webinar she went alright on the 10th I was like yeah 10th oh you know that's our anniversary I was like yeah but dinner won't be till later will it so uh, I've got to go and do some uh, that now yeah mine was last week and I done the same thing and I'm the one that organised it so <laughs> I feel your pain I feel your pain well um, hopefully get you on again just real quick what's the the sports science obviously moving the the event you were going to have this summer is there any more word on on are you going to restart all that? Yeah, I set up soccer science a couple of years ago, um, just as a little thing that because I'd gone and sat in quite a few conferences and thought, yeah, sounds great, but I don't know how this works in the real world. So I wanted to kind of get that blend of both, um, and it's really snowballed. It's gone in, it's brilliant. It's gone into something bigger than what I thought. But obviously, had to cancel it this year due to what's going on in the world. But yeah, we'd like to do it again. Uh, we had some really good good speakers lined up as well, uh, which is a shame. But, you know, once it's safe to do so, I'm sure that we will. So if anyone hasn't seen that, have a look at Soccer Science. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll look to do something again soon. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I'll send a link to all the coaches who who signed up uh, for it and who enjoyed or uh, who joined us. Um, the feedback's already come in and everyone enjoyed it. So brilliant, race. We'll keep in touch. Thanks so much again. Yeah, no, thanks for your time. Thanks for everyone to, to, for logging on and that. It's, um, I really enjoyed it. So, no, thank you. Oh, class. Happy anniversary. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Let it go. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, 
sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.